Greetings and welcome to Office Hours. If you are watching on YouTube and you want to learn a little bit more about what we do here, head over to officehours.global. Now, our first hour is when we answer your questions on media and digital productions. And our second hour is typically something that we want to spend a little bit more time on. And today we'll be joined by brand strategist Nikita Pope with Branding Chicks to discuss all things brand development and the steps you need to take to create a brand for your business. So get your questions in early. And speaking of questions, Bill, let's dive into them. Absolutely. Our first one comes from our friend Guy Cochran in Seattle, and he says, what's the difference between iStat menus and iStatica Pro? Go ahead, Alex. Yeah, so both of them do similar things. And what they do is they basically expose a lot of things that you could get to with a command line or, or some other tools. But it gives you things like CPU power, GPU power, uh, your bandwidth going up and down, your CPU usage, your memory, your drive space, all those things get exposed. Um, and usually I have iStat menu and it goes across across the top of your your screen. And so it does, I use it all the time. The one I use the most is probably the bandwidth control. So I, you know, I, I can look up and go, well, I'm, I am uploading 580 kilobit, kilobytes, kilobits per second, <laughs> you know, like or kilobytes per second uh, up. And I know that that's actually what, you know, what's going on right now. Um, the I, the uh, I, although it says pro, the I st 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 statica, uh, Pro is probably has a couple less features, and I'm not sure exactly where they are. I think they're just not as detailed in how they how they um, display GPU and CPU usage and a couple other things. And so it's also half the cost. So if you're putting them on a lot of machines, it probably the iStatica Pro probably has pr everything that the average person would want for less than half the cost of iStat, which is and we're talking six ninety nine versus fourteen ninety nine. <laughs> so um, I've been using iStat um, menus for so long that I don't think I would change. Uh, if I was um, going to do this new and I was going to put it on a bunch of computers, um, I might look at the two and see if they really need what's in iStat menu. Um, uh, and, and so that's that's the difference, though. Probably both of them would be good for an, uh, someone starting out. Most of us that have been using iStat menu for a decade or more are kind of attached to it. It's, it's something that I put on every machine just so I know what's going on. Next question. Next one comes to us from Zach Phillips in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Can anyone explain why the sound devices PIX 240s, which record HD and have great preamps, are going for $4,000 on eBay while the PIX E devices and the PIX LRs are going for a quarter of that or less? Did all those speed drives die or something? Alex? You know, I, I, I have, I'm eventually going to, I have the beginning of it behind me, but I eventually, um, I'm going to have this lot um, museum. <laughs> this 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 shelf behind me is going to become a museum, and it already is started to become a museum of devices that I think are classic. You know, they were just the the perfectly built thing, and the um, the the Pix two forty will definitely be one of those things. Um, and so, and the reason for it is is that it just did all the basic things that you needed to do in a very convenient way. So it had your video in, video out. I think you convert to HDMI. You could take Here's the kind of things you could do with the picks. You could have two mic inputs going in and have your HDMI coming in from the other side, and you could record all four channels. <laughs> you know, so that your computer audio and your and your mics. You had limiters on the mics. You had all these bits and pieces, and so it had everything kind of built into it. You could also do basic routing, so you could take those all those inputs, but only route the audio audio that you wanted out of it. And so it had a lot of audio tools that were really great. 
It was very, very durable. The problem, I had some Pixie 5s and Pixie 7s as well. And the Pixie 5s and Pixie 7s didn't have those the same analog outputs unless you bought an extra piece that you had to push into it, which, which by the way, had much better preamps than the, than the Pix 240, but you had to buy that separate piece. So probably when you see it lower cost, it's because that separate piece isn't with it. It's like a little bar that goes across the bottom. And in addition to that, there were some corners cut in the Pix, the Pixie 5 that, for instance, it, when you did 720 output, it did 72030, which is technically a... Uh, a format, but not a format that anybody else uses. <laughs> so, or, or 720p, 29.97. So if it goes through a Pixie, it would get to the satellite truck, for instance, and not show up as a signal because the satellite truck can only see 725.59.94. And so those little corner cuts on the on the Pixie 5 made it less valuable in the long term because it had kind of, it was a little bit wonky. We were really excited when it came out because it was 4K. It had, you know, it was it was smaller, it was lighter. Um, the the storage was actually more convenient, but but it turned out that it, we still most of what most of us have kept is the uh, Pix two forty, and that's why it's more expensive. And adding a cherry on top to that, Mickey says in the chat, the professional PX um, Pix line is still sought after, including the oops, sorry, Mickey, that was the second comment you did. <laughs> the PX um, PIX E line is the cheaper line marketed to the DSLR crowd. So just adding that as a, yeah, and, a part of it. And the and the Pix two, um, the two sixties and the two or the um, the Pix. There's the 240, which is the, 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 I would show it to you, but it's actually in my, it's the PIX 240 after all these years is still in my pipeline. <laughs> so I can't, I can't take it out. Um, anyway, but uh, uh, the, the 270s are really popular as well because they could record Dante and you could, it was just a good, basically you could um, record a lot of, a lot of channels all at one time, kind of like a Joko and, and, and along with video. So they were classics. It was really unfortunate. I think that, Overall, I think sound devices had a hard time because they were building a better product, but you had less expensive products from companies like Atomos that just made it really made the market really messy, um, you know, and made it hard to make it, make money with something that is much better for professionals, but not not as mass market as as the other uh, as the competition. Next question. Next one comes to us from Bo Cordell in Charleston, South Carolina. He says, I got a cheap teleprompter off Amazon to set up at my wife's desk for Zoom calls. What's a good inexpensive desktop tripod solution to use to support it? Let's start with Jeffrey. So the biggest problem with putting anything on a desktop like this is that's what can happen uh, if you start using your uh, keyboard. So uh, I have my camera on a on a on one of those tripods that you can around a pole and, and, and things like that. I would highly recommend a, a very inexpensive, go to the music store and get yourself a, uh, a, a microphone stand, basically the one of these smaller ones with a big base on the, on the bottom. If you got to put it on the desktop and then you just can, you can get an adapter that can uh, hook it up so you can uh, uh, put the uh, teleprompter right on there uh, or even redrill holes if you want to on the on the cheap teleprompter. So it'll work there. It's not going to be as stable, but you won't have the three legs coming out. You'll have a single leg coming up, and that'll be a little bit more slimline. Otherwise, I would try to to, to have it on its own stand off the desk, so you didn't get you won't get that shake. Chris, well, I feel silly saying anything because Jeffrey said basically what I said. I, my preference, although there's reasons why it's not great, is a, like a single pole like a visa mount pole. And it's interesting in today's world of, you know, things coming off of Amazon, 
Uh, you can find them super cheap. And I currently have a pole that I have a few monitors. My camera is mounted to it. And I even, I, I have a lot, short, long story short, I have a lot of stuff mounted to this one single pole. And um, I just drilled a hole in the desktop. And yes, if I pound on the desk, it will shake. But you can always get better desks. Go ahead, Bill. I tried using tripods of various kinds. Most of the really small ones, particularly the ones with kind of flattened out legs that you can get really low, because that's what I needed to get it behind the teleprompter and have the teleprompter in the right place, didn't work very well. So I ended up with this rig. Uh, this is actually a shot from about three minutes ago, and you can see that I have a super clamp, Mafer clamp, uh, a little rig there to hold it up, and there's the base of the teleprompter right at the bottom. The reason I went in that direction rather than using a tripod is it's just a whole lot more stable. It doesn't shake as much. Now, I was lucky in that I have a the right kind of desk that has a mid-tier that I could clamp that to, but I do suggest that as stable as you can build a rig, and sometimes just regular grip gear does as good or a better job than a bespoke tripod if you have it lying around. And Alex? Yeah, you can definitely use a tripod in the back. A lot of times you don't have a lot of room to the back of the wall. So one of the things that we use a lot are what called a triad orbit. So triad orbit has a, it's a single pole, but the, the, the tripod portion of it opens at the bottom and, and not very far wide. And we send these out there really heavy. Um, we use them, we, um, we, we got using them for 360 because we could paint the tripod out easily because of the, the tripod legs were five feet below and just, just kind of came out as a little foot. Um, they are going, they are definitely, uh, strong enough to hold a, a teleprompter. The big problem you get into with teleprompters is that you need enough, it needs to be able to manage that weight. So the triad orbit will work well. And then you just get a tripod head that you're going to put in. The triad orbit, it's going to terminate with a, a three-eighths inch um, 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 screw. So you just need to put that down on, on onto there. Another option, if you're trying to put it onto a tabletop, is to look at a hi-hat. So Pro-Aim has ones on Amazon for a couple hundred bucks. And this is a, it's a platform, it's a piece of wood, and it's got a little hi-hat platform and it'll it'll accept, uh, they have uh, different versions, one for 75 millimeter, another one for 100 millimeter. You can just drop, and then you can buy a cheap, you know, a cheap tripod and just take that head off of it, take the, take the um, ball head off and drop it into the, into the hi-hat. And that hi-hat, you can just kind of move around. It's still gonna have the vibration problems that were mentioned before, although if you put a sandbag under, on, on the tripod or a couple of them, not going to move very much. <laughs> so, so anyway, so you can make that work. The final one that you could do is, is a C stand in the back as well. You just need to build a. a um, basically, you're going to have a baby pin uh, mount that's going to go to a three eighths, and then you're going to put uh, mount everything on it. The problem with the C stand is is that you just you really have to have that ball head somewhere, and that C stand is not going to let you use a standard ball head because it's got a pole there. So that's the only thing that you have to kind of you know look at how you're going to kind of manage that rig. Um, so those are a couple different options that that you could use. Thanks for that, because I was wondering about a C-stand option. Chris? You know, there's an interesting question, uh, a thing to think about. Uh, Bill, you're using that, you know, clampy thing that you clamp to that desk, and I'm using some clamp stuff. When we talk about installations, and Alex, I've heard you say this electronically about using, uh, I, th I think a few weeks ago you said something about it. it you wouldn't want to design a system around a... Um, what, what's that red box called? Decimator? If, if you have yeah. to put too many decimators into your design, you probably designed it wrong. And it's kind of the same thing when it comes to mounting stuff. If, if you have to design a system with like temporary clamps and mounts, maybe we're not 
designing well, and, it the right way. And, and maybe and a there's lot a more times, permanent way to do it. Yeah, a lot of times what we do is we um, – I'll hack something together. I think there's a question later about this. But I, I'll hack things together. They're like, oh, this will work. But I very quickly take notes of, okay, how do I do this properly? You know, eventually, eventually I'm going to take that stuff out and I'm going to build something like – I've kind of hacked together. I don't have a teleprompter on here right now because I'm still recovering from having that Sony camera. Um, but um, but the usually I have a teleprompter up here, and I'm now in the process of rebuilding one. I'm going to kind of hack something together, get it working, get cheap glass, get things, just kind of throw things in and see, do I like this? And then if I do like it, then I'm going to spend $800 on, on teleprompter glass, and I'm going to go back and, you know, build it. And I may even, you know, machine something out to, to make that work. Um, but I'm going to start with maker pipe and, and uh, relatively inexpensive glass and, and a lot of gaff tape you know, to figure things out. And I find that, that it's just it's so powerful to just take what you have and throw something together and get it to where you, where you want it. Like right now... I have a dream of a nicer desk, but I have two desks. I have a six-foot folding table and a four-foot folding table that's higher than the six-foot folding table that just kind of holds all my stuff. And I'm slowly figuring out what I like about that. And then I'm going to talk to Chris and I'm going to go up to Sacramento and we're going to hang out and uh, drink beer and make a, make a desk. That's, that's my big plan. <laughs> Sounds like a smart one. Yeah. <laughs> and pulling in from the comments, John mentions that um, for his wife's setup, he's got from Ikea an Ivar system that is on either side of the desk and has one of those supports as a crossbeam. So feel free to check the chat for more feedback. Next question. Mike Edwards in Brooklyn, New York says, Morning, guys. Currently, I export custom LTs as videos from Resolve for playout from Hyperdeck into Mimo. What other methods or interfaces would you suggest to display and or edit, if needed, custom LTs and graphics in real time, lower thirds, I'm assuming he means by the LTs, in real time to display them in real time instead of my current process? Go ahead, Jason. I'll go with near real time here. Um, my very favorite for playout and controlling even a hyperdeck is MIDI. M I T T I. It's an app for Mac OS that um, that really does just beautiful playout. In fact, if you have a Duo Two card, it'll even generate time code for you, um, and you can you know put that all throughout your rig. It's a great app. Alex. Yeah, and and I would uh, MIDI. I mean. Um, uh... Mimo has its own lower third tools. So I would also look at those, those lower third tools and see if it's something that you can actually use. I have to admit, I haven't used a lot of them. I just know that they're there. I'll take a, look, I'll take a closer look at them. Um, but they, so they will already do the key fill. So if you can figure out a way to put your graphic in there and then, and then have the text pop on, um, that is something that, that would be, you could probably do inside of, inside of Mimo itself. After that, if you're trying to do a key, it sounds like what you're doing is a key fill out from your Hyperdeck. So you're probably using a Hyperdeck uh, Mini and you've got the key fill out and you're going to bring it back in and, and key it over. Um, that's one way to do it. You can also get um, a Ultra Studio, uh, you know, some version of an Ultra Studio that's going to give you key fill out um, or, a, you know, a deck link. Um, and what that's going to let you do is output those from any graphics generation system. So Softron has one. Um, there's a bunch of other ones that are out there. And what those are designed to do is do this. I mean, the high end is, you know, expression and, and VizRT. You don't need that for Memo. But but you can, um, you know, get a, you know buy these smaller ones that are designed to, what you're looking for is key fill out. And um, Pro, Presenter Pro or Pro Presenter, I can't remember. I always get those two mixed up. Um, it's mostly used in House of Worship, but it does key fill out as well. Um, MIDI does key fill out, as as Jason said. So you might want to use, you know, that'll do it. Um, also, you know, so there's a lot of different apps that will make that happen. And then you can build those behaviors together. The main thing is if you start building complex 
What makes it hard is to build complex compositing. So if you have things interacting with each other as they roll out, that's really hard. What's easier is I want this graphic to roll out and then I want this text to go on top of it. And you can get it very, happen very close, but you have to be kind of careful about how you roll those things out. And then also really think about whether animated graphics um, you know, are necessary. You'll know, look at graphics and outside of like football and other things, look at how often they're actually animated, <laughs> you know, like, and, and not just sliding in, sliding out, rolling up, rolling down. Um, you know, the, a lot of times people spend an enormous, uh, we, we used to spend an enormous amount of time uh, with lower thirds and I, I tend to make them much simpler than I used to. Um, so also consider that. Next question. Chris Sabato is up next from Albany, Oregon. And he says, I read that an 11-year-old created a chat room using Google Sheets to bypass the school blocking social sites. Slides are topics or memes and comments are chat threads. What is something you use in an unintended way that might actually be genius? Go ahead, Jeffrey. First of all, good for you. That's awesome. Um, so I've been working on some stuff in Google Sheets. Uh, that actually helps with office hours. I got uh, office hours. Uh, I do conversations with Tony Mobley and a couple other shows. And so what I've been doing is I've been building these Google uh, spreadsheets where they would enter in the information. The information gets formatted in a certain way and then gets ready to be put into a YouTube live session. So uh, once, uh, once the thumbnail is created, that gets put in there. And then ultimately, once I really start to understand how the API works in YouTube, I'll be able to hit a button and that will take all that information, create the live event and put it up from there. Another thing I've been doing is I've been working with these uh, remotely. So I, I have vMix uh, loaded up and I, I pull up the GT graphics from here and everything is done through a Google spreadsheet. So the person that's, that's got the show, they basically are zooming in and, and I, I get two uh, screens from them and then we go back and forth. But they, they, uh, they enter in all the graphic information. If it's an interview show, they enter in the, the names for the lower thirds. If it's a product show, then they uh, show give me a few points on a product and an image. And then once that Google spreadsheet gets populated, vMix will pick that up. And then all of a sudden, I'll have a, a, a full graphic that I can use that I can move uh, between the products left up, up and down and, uh, and, and just have, you know, great amount of graphics and I don't have to do all the work on that. Smart. Go ahead, Bill. I don't think it's genius. I think it's just an adaption of what it was designed to do. But for the last six or seven years, I've been doing all my voiceover work inside Final Cut, which is essentially a video editor, but it uses Logic's same code. So it has a pristine audio system. It actually has a voiceover module that they designed in for people doing that against their videos. But the thing that I think is genius about the way that it works that nobody seems to understand, at least in the voiceover communities that I hang out with, is that it does both punch and roll so it gives you a three beeps and then goes live absolutely cleanly so you can do inserts and you can kind of fix things really quickly at your desk and then the whole uh, keyword system means that I can do, for example, a read of a character and then assemble those character pieces using all the tags super quickly. I find it to be amazingly functional and I have not heard of anybody else using it this way, but it really is. I love it. Next question. 
Clive Kirchner in Souk, B.C., Canada is up next. Recommendations for a cheapish preamp coming out of Mac Studio to a reasonable pair of Andrew Jones bookshelf speakers. Uh, is the Focusrite Scarlet, Scarlet a good choice? That sort of thing. Go ahead, Jason. So you actually need two parts here. You need a DAC, which will take the um, the audio and turn it into analog. And then you need something. I looked up those speakers, and correct me if I'm wrong, I, I think it, they actually require a, a main amp, not a preamp, but a, like a full-on amplifier. Um, cheapish is really hard to do. Um, NAD makes one for about 800 bucks, but, um, you know, at the end of the day, mono price product 83860 for $149 looks really cool. And, uh, we'll totally do that. And Alex. Yeah. If you need to power it, you're in a whole different world of, uh, you know, powering the speakers. Usually what I try to do with speakers that I get for the most part, is I just want XLR ins. I want them to be self-powered, um, you know, so they, they each plug in. Now, some people don't, you know, obviously for installations, that can be a little difficult, but it gives me a lot more control of how I'm going to get to it. Um, obviously, you, there's a variety of AVRs that you could feed into it. So you could do it, you could have an AVR that you're going to feed stuff into it, and then they're going to power those speakers. Um, but the but if I was trying to do it inexpensively, the Scarlet and other things like that aren't going to help because they still need to power the speaker. So, um, so I think that, uh, you know, most of the outputs will be very similar in sa- in sound quality, uh, so Scarlet will work just fine. Anything else that doesn't an- analog out will probably do relatively well. But you, but if you have to power the speakers, you'll have a whole new set of problems. Next question, Justin Emanuel from Bakersfield, California, is up next. He says for just for video rack cooling and airflow, is it more efficient for the back of the rack to have solid blank panels and rack fans for exhaust, or to have vented rack panels? And he notes building an installed forty-two unit video rack with a Blackmagic switcher, video hubs, and Hyperdex. Jason, okay, for that rig. Um, I was about to say it depends until I realized, oh, man, that's a lot of heat. You're going to need um, – I use home theater fans, but you're going to need, you know, you're going to need an inlet and an outlet. Um, and then, you know, whatever you can do to kind of isolate it a little bit in the back is probably a good thing for noise. But you, you got your your work cut out for you there. Jeffrey? Yeah, keeping it as open as possible is is the key right there because you want to have that heat escape as quick as possible for any situation. And also cord management is a very important thing because if you get cords in the way, they're just going to get heated up and you're going to run into a whole bunch of new problems with hot cords behind you. And Alex? Yeah, so... Um it's a little bit of both. Um, what we do is we tend to put the fans in the front and then have vents in the back so that you're just pull, you're pulling air through the whole system. So if you, um, if you look at this, this is here you can see you know, our fans that are in the front of this kit. And we put them fairly often. It depends on what the op, the stuff is. I will say the Black Magic's heat dissipation has gotten a lot better over time. Um, this was done earlier on where we wouldn't ever put a hype. Two, two of the older Hyperdecks will never put more than two next to each other because the, they'll cook the center ones really quickly. But the newer ones do a much better job because they, they ventilate um, from typically from left to right really well. But anyway, so putting these fans in the front, they, these are very quiet fans. Um, with cool lights, you know, the clients like that. So anyway, so they, they have cool lights in them, but they, they're, um, they're very quiet. They're one U, you just put them in and they start pushing air in the back. And then when we um, want to get to something else, if you look at the back here, you'll see, this is just in our shop. This wasn't completely done. So that's why the wires are such a mess. But, but what you can see here are, the, are these vents here that we're going to, if we're going to block out anything going down this path that isn't serviceable, then we're going to put these vents in to allow that airflow to, 
to kind of move um, through the system. That's the, the big key is, yeah, to, to absolutely, you know, get it through, um, you know, get it through that system and keep it moving all the time. A lot of these fans will have uh, temperature, actual um, thermometers on them, so, or temperature gauges, and so they will turn on and off based on the heat that they, that they sense inside the kit. And there's pulling in on the comments here. Nigel said that there's an, a NAD, I'm not sure if it's NAD or NAD C700 may work as an amp. Check the rating on the speakers. The C700 comes with streaming tools. And then Mickey adds, design the racks, airflow, and install the components that allow and guide for this design. Bill? Just an alternative, but because I have a voice booth and because it gets really hot in there, I had to create an airflow system. And I used a ducted and one of these guys. Uh, these things are relatively inexpensive. They move an incredible amount of air. And with flex duct, you can move it 15 feet away from a rack or something like that. So it's very silent already. That far away, it is virtually noiseless and it'll move a ton of air fast. Next question. Uh, Chris Widener in Lafayette, Indiana, comes back with some YouTube premium subscribers have reported seeing a new option for video quality. In addition to the 1080p playback option, there's a second one at 1080p premium. Does this indicate 4K may be a premium only option in the future? Keely? Yeah, I think this is a really interesting innovation. The YouTube premium service, which I've been subscribing to for a short time now, uh, is probably the best spend of money that I make every month because I don't have to look at ads on YouTube and I do consume a lot of content on there. But the idea to bundle an extra level of quality in with a service that really essentially for most people allows them to uh, skip and, and not have to experience ads whatsoever is, I think, fantastic marketing, bundling a little bit more value that actually doesn't cost them more on their end. The problem is usually for the user having to intake all of that data on the 4K end and, and have to pay for that, especially if they're on mobile. That's the big difference. So I think this would be a, a really great business strategy for YouTube to go in that direction. Go ahead, Jeffrey. Uh, first of all, this is a beta. This is just a test. So only certain <clears throat> certain uh, creators get it, and certain premium viewers get it. Uh, there's n it's it's very possible that they'll integrate it just as 1080p. It's very possible that they say this is not going to work out at all, and they're just going to ditch the idea. Uh, so, but uh, it and and the bigger thing is there's a lot of creators that are still myself included. I do more 1080p than I do 4K video because it's a lot easier to to do i can get it out quicker and uh and it's, it's really just expirable content so if somebody watches it three four years down the line then uh then you know whatever quality it was at that that i think that's that's perfectly fine in that case and a lot of youtubers if you watch some of their videos you know i don't know if they'd be able to notice the difference between 1080p and 1080p premium but we'll see what happens and uh, they're always uh, YouTube's always working on new ideas and new ways to get you better quality, so you can watch more videos on YouTube. And Alex, five to six megs a second—that's what you're getting out of the premium. So the, for the premium, that when you're paying for it, you're getting about 13 megs a second instead of eight. Um, so eight, six to eight is what you're getting on a regular. Um, 13 is what you're getting on the premium or this this new premium. And what it'll do is you'll see it 
when in low light situations, in high motion areas, in a couple of, in, especially when you're doing 60p, you know, these things are where the premium is going to look a little bit better than it. And so, and, and I think a lot of it has to do with, hey, you're paying for this. Um, you know, we're going to make sure that you have a great experience. And we've seen this, this quality uh, go up over time inside of YouTube, in YouTube TV as well, where a lot of things, especially in sports, were breaking up, a, you know, a fair bit. And now it's gotten to a point where it pretty much, I watched the Super Bowl on YouTube TV and it was just like it would look on TV. <laughs> you know, so so um, I think that that's going to be there. We already see a 4K, and it, I, the 4K is available right now on YouTube. I think both in the premium, what we're talking about is potentially having more bandwidth for 1080, more more bandwidth for, for 4K. So the current solutions are still going to be available, but you're going to get a higher quality experience, again, in the low light, in the high motion, in those those areas. Um, will look a little better, be a little, feel a little bit more like regular TV than sometimes uh, you see with YouTube videos. Next question. Bobby Rafferty in Central Florida. Up next, I came across this app. They say they are, quote, the first live streaming app that broadcasts to YouTube in 4K. Is this just marketing hype? And he's got a link there to something called StreamCot. Go ahead, Jeffrey. Yeah, this is uh, something uh, it's you can only use your iOS or Android device for it. You can't use a desktop. And I don't think there's any way to put in extra graphics or, or multi-cam or anything like that. Uh, it's just sending a signal uh, through a third party into into YouTube. So, And that's the key right there. It's not going direct to YouTube, which uh, YouTube can do 4K on its own. And if you got the right camera or if you got an older phone, 4K is not going to matter. You got a bad, uh, bad area that you're recording from. 4K, the, the high quality is not going to matter. It's just going to be a jumbled mess. Keely? Yeah, this is a really interesting uh, addition to the live streaming universe. And But the thing that I really noticed when I went to look at some of their social media is that they're very, very new. So I thought that was a little bit interesting. But I did go ahead and download the app to have a look at it. And so this is sort of what the screen looks like. Uh, you can add overlays and there is chat uh, it, chat engagement features. So you can chat back and forth. I mean, obviously this is all just RTMP key streams to, you know, helping all this out. But I, I think it's a really interesting idea. Uh, unfortunately, you can't do any streaming without a subscription, but I'm actually going uh, mobile in about six weeks. And I'm going to give it a try to see what it is. But I guess it's the difference of the languages. Well, it's not the first app that can stream to YouTube in 4K. It could be one of the first mobile apps to be able to stream in 4K. But all the limitations that Jeffrey just talked about are absolutely valid and will be things that uh, I'll experiment with very shortly. And Alex. Yeah, I did download it um, this morning because of the question. It, 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 this is always a good reminder that if you ask these questions early, it gives us time to get up in the morning, have coffee, and and download it and give it a shot. Um, so I did look at it. It I think that it might be the first mobile app that does 4K that I've seen. So it, it, I think that, that actually is probably a valid claim. I don't think that the YouTube one actually does 720. I think it does 720p or maybe 1080p, but definitely not 4K. Um, it is the RTMP solution. It will be really interesting to see because one of the frustrations that a lot of people have with the YouTube app is that it just goes straight to YouTube and it doesn't give you the chance to 
schedule in the same way um, that that you can with um, with uh, the uh, with a standard RTMP input. So so I think that that that's really interesting. It's expensive um, for the full like full blown high bandwidth UHD. It's like thirty nine dollars a month. <laughs> so it's like it, they're they're really uh, you know this is for YouTubers who are making good money who want to do something a little bit above. Um, I think that um, it has a standard HDR, which I don't know what it, that means. Um, it also do, can record in Dolby Vision, uh, it, you know, to the to the drive. So I think it's an actually, and it's got some overlays. Got you can do PIP, so you could have show something that you're out there and show you talking about it. Um, those are things that are available. I think in the one step up, like the 20, there's like a 1999, 29.99, 39.99 version of it. Um, I think it's pretty interesting. Uh, I. This week's pretty busy, so I'm probably not going to, I'm probably going to constrain myself from buying, you know, going in. There's a seven-day, you know, test period. I don't know if I have time to do that this week, but we'll see. Um, but I think it's worth testing to see how well it works. Um, it also lets you, if you go to the higher, the higher cost ones, you can turn that bandwidth up. So you can get up to about 13 megs a second as well. So um, it's pretty pretty interesting little app. Nice. And speaking of, we're just past the halfway mark of our first hour, so feel free to continue to vote on the questions because your votes impact the questions and submit questions for this hour or the second hour coming up on branding for your business. Next question. Comes to us from Jack, uh, Zach Phillips, excuse me, from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Is there any solution aside from DMX for remote lighting control when you just want to set several presets for a set of lights to be controlled remotely over the web? And he notes DMX feels so overkill. Alex? It does, but... <laughs> it's really hard to find uh, lights that are that are that where the apps are. A lot of the lights that have controls that are like some kind of Bluetooth or other things like that tend to be to a mobile device, and it's very hard. And we haven't seen a lot of them port to M1. So, if you had an M1, you could theoretically have a computer that you're remoting into and then turning it on and then controlling the lights. But we haven't seen a lot of those active, and so that's been one of the real limitations. So you end up with either a DMX King or NTech controller, which is a Ethernet to um, DMX. So then you have the DMX lights on the other side. Um, you can then control it in a lot of different ways to get get the data there. Whether you know, so those are the those are the things that you you want to look at um, for that process. Next question. Douglas Carmichael's up next, and Douglas asks, Wave Audio is retiring SoundGrid Studio, the studio-oriented SoundGrid host application, in favor of their live-oriented Motion LV1 platform, eMotion LV1 platform. For someone who doesn't mix live, would it be best to migrate from SoundGrid to Dante or migrate to LV1? Go ahead, Alex. I think that would really depend on the rest of the components that you have. Are they going to be something that that are is it all um, you know is it all working with waves or is it all or are you doing a, a, a more of a mixed situation where you have a lot of things that are Dante and a lot of things if if it is that you have a lot of other devices that are using Dante and may not use the grid um, the or the emotion platform the LV1 then you may want to think about moving to Dante at that point. Next question. Next one comes to us from Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas. And Paul says, what can you do with the eSATA port on a Synology drive? Go ahead, Jason. So eSATA or external SATA can do exactly what you think it can do. If you don't want to buy, let's say you're running out of SATA storage space um, and you like the brain that you have, you like the Synology NAS that you have, you don't have to buy the brain again. You can buy an expansion pack, and I'll put a link in Mukana for which packs go with uh, which NASs. There you go. 
Next question. Douglas Carmichael back again. This time he says, uh, if I do mid- migrate my studio from SoundGrid to Dante, would DVS at four milliseconds or an RME digitface Dante interface give me the lowest latency performance for use with virtual instruments? Alex? I think latency is not as much of an issue as stability. So one of the things that you need to be careful of is that you, with a Dante system, you have to have some piece of hardware that is using Dante. <laughs> like that, that, it's got a hardware chip in it. Without that hardware, Dante hardware chip, we end up with a lot of stability issues um, related to Dante if we're doing software only. Um, so something has to be in your chain that has the hardware chip in it um, to keep everything uh, working smoothly with each other. But I have, we have not really had any major issues with the latency, but we have had issues with the stability. Next question. Paul Terry Wallace is back again from Austin. Meta, kind of like Twitter checkmark users, has what are called notable users. Will you become one? Go ahead, Keely. Those are two different things in the Meta universe. So the new Meta Verified is their paid program that you provide government ID in order to be established as the person that you say that you're going to be. They've packaged that as a subscription for both Facebook and Instagram separately. I definitely won't be doing the Facebook, by the way. But notable users are people who have been able to, uh, you know, establish themselves as authorities and things like that. That is by application and uh, on the the privilege of the Facebook uh, monarchy. So those are two different aspects. They have two different badge styles now, and that that that's that. Alex, yeah, and I. I do have the Twitter subscription. I probably won't do Facebook. <laughs> like I just don't. I don't spend enough time there. Uh, so I, you know, I go up. I uh, you, typically my my use case. If if you're trying to contact me on Facebook, just know that I go up about once a month and I go to everyone that messaged me and go, oh, I'm sorry, I don't come here very often. And I give them a place to get, to get a hold of me. <laughs> so so I, that's about as much as much as I do on Facebook. So I don't think it would be it would work out for me. And Jason. You know what really bothers me about Facebook is that they make this a recurring thing and then pretend that you need to be re-verified every month. Um, you know, do it once and then charge a dollar a month. Okay, that makes sense. But the, the idea that, that, that it costs the same because they're doing this laborious thing every month is completely absurd. and They're pricing it wrong. I personally will not be doing it. And I'll, I'll like right now in and of this live <laughs> won't be doing it. And I do have a lot of influencer friends who they I just got a lot of DMs last week or when the announcement came and there's not a good feeling uh, around it from from many people who have put their sweat equity into the, the platforms to then now be charged again. So, um, Chris. I think the angle behind all of this, the getting your government ID. I think ultimately what Facebook and Twitter are trying to do is to become a, um, sorry, I ran because I just, I just parked my car and I heard you guys talking about this. I was like, Oh, I want to talk about this. Ran up from the garage. Um, I think it's, it's about banking. I think, I think what we're going to see is that Twitter wants to be the all in one app that you can use for um, banking. And by getting people to verify with an actual ID, it's one step closer to getting into being a financial tool. That's my, that's my uh, thought about this whole thing. Go ahead, Alex. 
Yeah, I think that um, it could be about banking, and I think that Chris could be could be right there. A lot of um, asking people to give you money uh, has to do with the fact that um, constant. I mean, and and Jason's right to some degree. It could be a lower number, but they've kind of decided that's the acceptable number. So why give any up? Because um, I, I think that what they probably made the decision is is that the same number of people will pay eight dollars as they'll pay two dollars, and if they're going to pay something, they're going to pay something. But financial financial uh, transactions make it much harder to to spoof because you keep on having to charge something. So by creating a charge system, the most useful part of this is that is that it's now in, inside of a financial legal tracking and it lets people see things. And so if you're doing things improperly, um, it, so a lot of times the, the charging is, and it just costs them to manage it. So they just go, well, we're going to manage all this stuff. We'll charge people enough to make it worth it. I don't think that it, I don't, that's why they charge more than $2 or $1. They charge $8 because they have to build a whole system that makes that work and they want to pay that off. I don't think that they're trying to make money on it as much as they are trying to separate people from a people who are who believe the platform's worth enough to pay means something's different to the company um so those are the and b it makes it much much harder to have bots i mean you really have to be committed because it's not just that it would cost you money to have people say well that you could just pay for the bots yeah but now we know where you are <laughs> like you know like you know you're you know it, you know and and the thing is is a monthly transcription what what's useful about that is it's easy to hide one transaction. It's hard to hide 12. You know, so if you're doing, if you have to have a transaction every month over time, it's very, very hard for you to spoof the system and have a bot and have us not know that you're coming in from Russia or China or North Korea or whatever. And so a constant payment system, and this has, I think this has much, has much more to do with verification than it has to do with actually trying to make money. Everyone keeps on thinking that Twitter's trying to make money at subscriptions. I don't think that's the case. I think that what they're trying to do is is mow down everybody, every, everything that is possibly causing a, an issue. And I think that what you will see in most of these organizations as that builds up, you already see this now, is that the folks that are verified are going to be treated much differently than the folks that are not verified. And eventually, you're going to get to a point where the only thing you see in For You pages is verified. You know, they're, not, they're just slowly, you know, you never, people never just release something. They, they slowly, they turn something on. And then they slowly start tightening the bolts. So if like if you jump into a spaces account as a if you're verified, you go all, all the verified are at the top and all the unverified, you know, drop down below. And so they're just they're just separating the privileges out based on folks that are willing to throw a little money into it. And they do. They have some of that language in there. It's like very, very minute, but it just says like you'll get tech support, you'll yeah. you'll, you'll get better support, and you'll get you'll be seen more. Like they say it. So and, you're, and it's you, true. Like you, yeah. you definitely are seen more if you have a if you have the check mark because you can see it getting sorted. You know, right. as you as you go through that as, as you go through. When people say, "Oh, no one's seen my tweets," generally those people are not pain <laughs> you know like so so you know like so so the um and and so and for the folks that have decided like for instance i twitter's my last bastion it's the only one that i use and it's the only one that i have a reasonable following on and so as a result i'm not going anywhere so i just started paying it i was like you know when in rome <laughs> you know or, you know give to caesar what is caesar's you know like just you know it's like i i don't have any uh you know I, i'm just like okay whatever you know and so uh, so I think that that is the case um, for a lot of folks. If you've paid for it, you generally have found that your Twitter probably works almost exactly as it did any, at any point in time in the past, if not a little better. If you're not paying for it, it's kind of a disaster. 
And in the comments, John says, if I was a business, I would become verified for the access to customer service. And that's what I said before. Those that are thinking or considering about it that I've heard, it is that, oh, so now I'll get access. I'm in a number of marketing groups and where their clients, they're managing their clients' pages and they're always asking, hey, does someone have a connect here because something happened? So I think in all of this, that is a big plus for people to be able, especially if you're a business, to get that that direct access for whatever um, whatever support issues that you'll need. Chris? Yeah, I mean, I, I keep thinking about the uh, the first Superman movie, the Lex Luthor plan of take, you know rounding all the bank transactions off by a penny or whatever, and eventually being a billionaire. I think that I'm going to predict that within 18 months, there will be like Twitter dollars or something, or a way that I can make a transaction, like I can donate to your Twitter endeavor, or 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 maybe even go so far as to like just you know pay my elect- electricity bill via Twitter. But I think that getting people's bank banking information is the start to that. Like I remember, um, I don't. What I here's what's interesting. I don't remember giving Google my banking information, but now it's very easy to send a super chat when I'm watching like the uh, you know Mark and Steve doing their Ripple Live shows, which I always do. I always love sending them money when I hear something that's that's interesting. But once I gave them my banking information, which I don't remember doing, it's very easy for me to participate with like a super chat. Same thing. Now that I've given Twitter my money my banking information, if I had a way of donating to something or contributing to something or, you know, uh, um, hey, I'm going to send you some Twitter dollars for, for lunch or whatever. It's now, it's now it's going to be very easy. I'm into the system. Go ahead, Jason. To Alex's point, I, I totally agree and I totally understand um, you know, yes, of course, every month, if you have to be verified, it's very, very difficult to, um, to you know, defraud 12 times in a row. And like, you know, the amount of metadata that comes off of a credit card transaction is just like just awe-inspiringly large, um, especially if you do other things on the web. My main issue is kind of the mealy-mouth approach. It's like, why don't they say that? Elon Musk says everything else. Why not just say it's to get rid of the bots? Alex. He actually has said that. Yeah. Oh, good. He said it's get rid of the like, he, he flat out said it. You know, like, so, so they're, they're definitely been very clear about why they're doing it. And, and I think that, again, they can, it allows them to separate people who are serious from people who are not serious about the platform. And, and I think that that probably makes a lot of sense for them. Um, I do think that the other thing, to Chris's point, is that the microtransactions are going to be really interesting because, you know, right now when we use a credit card to give people money, it's highly inefficient. There's there's credit card charging um, fees. There's all kinds of other stuff. If you can get someone to give, put ten bucks in, and then you move the content, you move the money around. You can move it all around virtually, and then only have one transaction on the way out. And it's just a lot more efficient, you know, for these companies to to um, you know be able to add value. Go ahead, Bill. Just a word of warning, though, from my personal experience. Years ago, I had a little subscription thing that was coming out of my account for a minor thing, and I, I said, you know, I really don't want this anymore. And, I, and the company did not seem to agree that I should be able to stop that. So I went to my bank manager, and I said, can we just stop this credit card uh, draw out of my bank account? And they said, uh, I can't. And I said, why? And she said, 
it's because if you look at the rules and regulations of the transaction that you sign with this company, you can only do binding arbitration. The bank is not a party to this transaction. You have absolutely no no control of stopping this draw unless you go into this arbitration system. It was not a pleasant day in my life. And that's why you use credit cards and you specifically split your split your transactions over credit cards so that you can just change a number. <laughs> like you just go, I'm going to change the number on this card, credit card and then after that it's gone. Next question. Next question comes to us from Douglas Carmichael. Ross Video has a virtual appliance that simulates a carbonite black switcher frame. For those that want to familiarize themselves with bigger switches, switchers without access to one, can the simulator be downloaded publicly? Alex? I don't know how it can be downloaded. I think it makes a lot of sense. Maybe we can see if we can reach out to Bo Cordell and see if he, if he doesn't have any more information. You might want to put that into, um, he, he can often, he's obviously working, so he can't always get, get here in the morning uh, to, to do the stuff, but he can, but you might want to ping him on Discord or put it up on, on Discord. Um, but I think that it'd be great if it's, if it's available. Next question. Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas says, could this be the robot of the year? And the makers say it was voted best robot at CES. What's your favorite household robot? And Paul has a link there for us. Go ahead, Jeffrey. It may be voted best to CES, but I don't remember finding it at CES. I heard about this. And, uh, of course, I don't, I don't get into too much of these small robots because every single year we get another one. Like, for instance, uh, it was uh, 2019. Sony came out with the Ibo, which was the dog. And then, uh, and then you had uh, the one, the Stormtrooper one, uh, the year before that. And, uh, and so it's, it's a $350 device with as much robotics as a Canon and a phone that's running a programming language that's probably easier to use to do different things. But uh, everything that I've, I've seen that uh, that robot do has been already pre-programmed, like the uh, running of the bowl and, and things like that. So it's really going to depend on how versatile that uh, that programming language is to this robot that, uh, that can do a whole bunch of different things. But once again, you're talking a $350 robot. It hasn't come out yet. Uh, Indiegogo says that it's not going to be out till April of this of this year. And, you know, delays could happen on, on that aspect. And there were a lot more impressive robots at CES. But, you know, you're going to have to pull out your pocketbook for those. Go ahead, Keely. Yeah, I had a look at the marketing video and um, I'm... I'm terribly afraid to say it's just a small toy and just adorably cute. And my Venvo, if you'd like to support me in buying one of these, I'm just kidding. I, it, It's ridiculously cute. It's personable. It's everything that they're trying to encourage for mass adoption of these kind of devices. And I think it's got some legs and, and my Venmo is, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Alex. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure the data, the data gathering from a little, um, a little dog like that would be super useful. Sorry, sorry to be a little paranoid, but that's a lot of you're talking to something that's that's going to be pulling data, you know. And so um, I, I I tend to, I mean, even your Roomba pulls data to go back to Amazon. <laughs> so 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 just 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 think think through that a little bit. And John, the best household robot was the robot that said "crush, kill, destroy" on Lost in Space. <laughs> Next question. Tlaloc Lopez Waterman in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Could anyone on the panel remind me the switch that Guy said works so well with NDI? Was it a Netgear? Go ahead, Jason. Yeah, sure was. Uh, Netgear's AV line of switches, and uh, there's a link in Mukana for you. 
and Alex. Yeah, these are the 4250s to be uh, specific, and it's a very long line. So while it says 4250 there, the, the AV line is very long. You can start with very small ones all the way up to POE++ um, with 500 and some you know, watts of power. So it's a lot of, a lot of options there. Next question. Josh Kaufman in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. What can we learn from past immersion trends? Were they poor ideas, fads, or ahead of their time? What current immersive media trends do you feel will persist and which will fade and why? Go ahead, Alex. So I've worked on some kind of immersive media for about 30 years, you know, on and off. And um, the big thing is, is for the most part, we were way ahead. Uh, the tools weren't ready for it. The technology wasn't ready. We didn't have the bandwidth. We didn't have the interfaces. We didn't have the processing speed. You know, a lot of those things have been the thing. So we always knew that it was coming, but we just didn't know when. Um, and I'm assuming like heads up displays and all those other things. And I think that we're... Um, we're, we're getting much closer. The big thing is, is that uh, right now there is a huge stratification between uh, print and video and, you know, audio and all those other things where what we really want, I think, is for those to slowly find a way to merge together. So we're listening to something. We might want to look at something, you know, we might want to interact with something. The tools have almost been there for a long time. If you look at iBooks was probably the closest one that just didn't quite gel. You know, at, you know, the team wasn't quite big enough. There wasn't enough commitment at Apple to really change the way we think about media. And so, um, it, you know, so I think, though, that as we move towards the headsets that Apple's working on or reportedly working on um, and everything else, we, I think there's going to be an interest in how do we pull all these pieces together where I'm looking at something and an image might be in the book. I click on the book and it appears in front of me. I can walk around it. I can click on something else and it plays a video. Um, I might be able to walk around and it tells me about things around those things, around that subject. Um, these are the kind of things that are very doable. And what there's a couple of things that have made it easier. Number one is, um, you know, GPS, you know, but also precision tracking. So if you look at ultra ultra wideband, ultra wideband means our phone can tell knows where it is um, down to about six to eight inches. I'm oh, sorry, six to eight centimeters. Um, or, so it's a really small ball of where it knows. Now from there. It can use the optical tracking to you basically turn the environment that you're in into hashes. So it's got hashes of I know I know where the details are. And if I know where your phone is and I don't have to search the entire room, I only have to search this little ball of what you could see from there. I can find those hashes out there and then I can snap into where I know where your camera is within less than a millimeter. And now I can start tracking information into it um, so that I can look at it. I think this is going to be incredible for things like museums, <laughs> you know, like where you can where you can have this data. You can pick up your phone and it starts, just starts telling you what you're looking at because it knows what those things are. Uh, it also event centers, um, tourist sites, all these things um, are going to be pretty exciting um, pieces. And it's just going to take it really is going to take one person or one company to do something that is astounding, that is using off-the-shelf hardware, the har off-the-shelf software. The problem you get into is that someone can code something like that, but everyone goes, oh, that's amazing. Like Elements came out and we thought, well, that's the most amazing book I've ever seen, but you had to write a program to do it. Um, so so the fact, if, it, if you have a platform, a development platform, and you have people building astounding things on that platform, and it's, it's something that any, almost anybody can do, um, you're going to see an explosion in this. And I think the rumors are that this is what Apple's working on, is being able to build something that is that is highly, that, that allows you to build immersive software, but allows an average person to do it. And they're building those tools out. And you're seeing pieces of it with the reality, um, you know, 3D, you know, a lot of the reality kits that Apple's building, you're seeing pieces of it come out. And hopefully we'll see a lot more um, in June. And Jason? 
not being old enough to have worked in immersive media for the last 30 years, but definitely doing my best to immerse myself in media for the last 30 years, um, I, I kind of took this question a little bit differently. I see this as a split between um, creating immersive media and consuming immersive media. And I agree, Alex, that, that the real fix, you know, the, the coup de grace is being able to do both, e being able to draw people in with one and then telling them everything you know about the consumption of this will aid the creation of it. And, you know, that'll be a fantastic day. I feel like it, it just kind of writ large, um, AR is the end game. AR is the most useful thing. AR is the thing that people will go, wow, because, you know, you can get a floor plan and just thunk it down, you know, and send it over a text message. It's amazing. Um, but in order to do that well, I feel like we need to get better at VR. Um, and along those lines, I got the PSVR 2, which does 4K per eye at 120 hertz. Wow. It is really, really good. Next question. Morgan Price in Victoria, British Columbia says, what portable microphone setup, for example, to a laptop, would you recommend for a recording of a 10-person meeting in a boardroom, specifically so that the audio can be transcribed after the meeting? Jeffrey? This is the million-dollar question. I used to do, and, and, and every now and then I'll still do coffee talks where we have people sitting around the, the uh, around a table. And uh, what I would do, is, what I did at the time was I'd always put in a podium microphone about every two or three people so they could get audio. When you're doing transcription, uh, the more noise that comes through the microphone system, the harder it is to transcribe. So, And it happens because one person's talking, the other person's drinking their coffee, another person might be clinking on a plate or, or anything like that, and that can completely destroy that. The best setup, uh, and probably the cheapest, cheapest setup, is to get something like an X-Air and then some lavalier microphones and then have them all laughed up, and then have somebody uh, holding the controls on a, on a mixing console uh, so you can get the best amount of audio with the least amount of room noise and the least amount of, uh, of glass clinks that uh, go in with any in, uh, situation like that. Bill? Classic problem, and you know, you're really fighting this whole inverse square principle. If you have a microphone in the middle of the table and you have two people at two of the corners and they're both five feet away and they decide in the middle of a robust discussion to talk at the same time, separating those voices out for clarity becomes virtually impossible. There's just no differentiator between the two people speaking and it becomes incredibly hard to transcribe that. The only way to get around that is to put an individual microphone on each person, a little recorder or something like that, and try to separate them and then you got to do it all in post and alex yeah uh, our favorite for this is uh, the the microflex line from sure so there's a gooseneck solution i think it's the mxw8 and there is also a boundary solution which is the mxw6 these are wireless they have little they and they drop into little a little setup that you can put them in you push a button and it just organizes all of them so that they all you don't have to remember what number is what you just push it and reset it it goes basically wireless to a to a hub, which then delivers it via Dante. Then what you want to do is you want to run that out, <clears throat> excuse me, you want to run that Dante to something like an X32 or something else that can do um, uh, Dugan auto mixing so that it cleans up that that push of all the mics there. It'll, it'll push all the other mics away when someone's talking. Um, but then you also want to record all those channels if you can, um, just in case the Dugan didn't clean it up enough. 
Um, you're going to find that, that that along with a softer room. So really think about the room treatment as well. Um, a lot of times we've built things that look nice on camera if we have to. And if you don't have to worry about cameras, then, then it's even better. But look nice, but are soft. They're, they're thick. They have, they have um, things that are going to suck up all that sound. Um, you know, if you walk into a conference room with that's gla- <laughs> a glass conference room, you're not going to probably get the solution that you're looking for. Next question. Next one comes to us from David Brady in New York City. He says, now that I'm back at the office, is there a proximity app that will lock my laptop when the iPhone isn't nearby? Keely? Yeah, have a look at this Nearlock that I just uncovered. This is nearlock.me, and it looks like it's got full compatibility with all of the newest things and quite well developed. So it will lock and unlock as your iPhone comes within a set proximity and might just fit the bill exactly for you. And Alex. I believe that the phone, this is built into iOS or, or into macOS. I think that there is a proximity filter, um, both for your watch and your phone. And I haven't used it for a long time because I'm at home that will um, close and open your, your um, laptop. So I think it's a setting inside of your usage bot to go look a little deeper. But I think that that's built into the OS. Oh, it won't close it and open it, but it will, it will just lock the, it'll, it'll lock you out. I think uh, that's that, the thing. That, that would have been for. really cool. That would be really cool. Like, <laughs> And it has to make a it, it has to make the beeping sound beep 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 as it comes down. But uh, no, I think that I think it's actually built into the OSs um, to talk when you walk away from something to lock it. I definitely know it'll unlock it when you do that. And Jason, real quick, yeah, David, assuming that your laptop is a Mac, uh, Alex is correct for the last two or three operating systems. If you go into System Preferences and just search for Watch, it's actually using Bluetooth time of flight, so it really can't be faked out um, for that around the path traversal. And yes, it will auto lock if you enable it with the Watch. The caveat is that it has to be on the same Wi Fi. Awesome. Well, that wraps our first hour. Thank you so much for producers for all of your questions. And now as we transition into talking about branding for your business and what that development cycle looks like, how it can be cohesive, I'm excited to welcome Nikita Pope with Branding Chicks to Office Hours. Welcome, Nikita. Hello. Hello. I'm glad to be here. So happy to have have you here because you have been in this space for a long time and you have from from the education side of things, speaker side of things and working with so many brands. And we've had conversations on office hours around branding, like personal branding. But before we get into talking about what that means for business, can you give us a little tell us a little bit more about you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, My name is Nikita Pope. Um, Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here today. Um, I started in graphic design. Um, I'm a creative at heart. So I started in design. Um, That gave me an opportunity to work in lots of different environments, um, both as a creative director, an art director, a creative director, um, in in in-house, in design firms, in advertising agencies. So that gave me a very well-rounded experience. Eventually, I went out on my own and I found it branding chicks. Um, I specialize in brand development and brand strategy for women-owned businesses and femme-focused brands, Uh, but it gives me an opportunity to work with lots of different clients in different industries, and um, I love what I do. It's super fun. Um, As uh, Liberty said as well, I've been a professor for the last 13 years, so that gives me an opportunity to shape other young creatives and people who are interested in the creative side of marketing and advertising. 
So let's let's start with the the foundation here because branding. When we had our, our preliminary conversation, branding has become much of a buzzword. So yeah. people throw it over here and toss it over here. What is branding? Your definition. Yeah, um, I, I say the same thing. It, it definitely has become a buzzword. My definition is that your brand is every single touch point that your audience has with you. Everything from the 300,000 foot view of your overarching business strategy down to the 300 foot view, which is how, you know, they answer the phone when somebody calls your number, right? It's literally everything in between. So when you think about building a brand, you're not just thinking about your logo, you're not just thinking about your website or your headshot or your social media presence. It's literally every touch point that they have, um, how they, you know, they experience the service, how you write about the brand, um, what kind of voice the brand has. So it really is all encompassing. So when you think of it that way, then it makes it a lot easier to sort of wrap your head around, like, you know, asking yourself, does this one aspect embody the brand that I want? And does the next aspect embody the brand that I want? And eventually you have this cohesive brand that people know who you are and they understand what you're trying to do. What does that process look like? Like if someone, whether that be even giving an example of you taking clients through that process, but even for our community and those watching us live now, if they're mm -hmm. thinking of like, I know that I could improve, like my brand could be better, but yeah. where does someone even begin? That's a great question. Um, the first thing I would say, you know, is to sort of start to wrap your head around what it is that you want. Your, how do you want your brand to show up? You know, um, is it educational? Is it fun? Is it, um, you know, what kind of voice does it have? I always tell my clients to look at their brand as if it's a person. So like what kind of personality do you want your brand to have? Um, and those like little tidbits of their personality as you envision it are the things that you then implement into your brand. So have some idea of what you want that to be. And then when you come to someone like me, you know, because I focus on strategy, I'm looking to, to help you refine that to figure out where that where that plays out in the market. Like, you know, does that is that different than everything else that's in your category? Is it the same as everything else that's in your category? Um, really helping you define your audience. Um, I think that, you know, more often than not, when you hear about defining an audience for a brand, you hear about um, demographics. So that's like the tangible stuff. How old are they? Um, what ethnic background do they have? How much money do they make? Are they married? Where do they live? Those things are important. But what, from my perspective, I look at um, my philosophy as a head and heart centered branding, which means that you take all the data into consideration, but you have to look at this as a human to human interaction as well. So when I look at your audience, I'm also looking at, you know, what are the things that they're committed to? What are the things that keep them up at night? You know, um, like if your product or service solves a problem for them, what is that problem? And what does that problem mean to them? Does it impact their day to day lives, their families, their future? Futures. Um, those are the things that helps you get into the head of the people that you really want to interact with and engage with. Um, and once you know that, then it helps to guide you in all the decisions you make about your business. So it's not just the brand is over here and the business decisions are over there. It really helps to guide you and it helps you to figure out, you know, where you want to be. For instance, um, if you're looking at partnering with someone, is that on brand for you? If you're looking at advertising somewhere, is that on brand for you? 
Um, and so you have to look at it that way. And I think when you have an overarching idea of who you are and what purpose you want to serve and the people you want to interact with, then it kind of gives you the foundation for everything else. So as I mentioned a little bit earlier of the, we've had people come on and talking about personal branding and then business branding. What are the differences between the two, if any? Um, there are some differences. Um, there's not many though. Um, the main things are the same. So when I think about a personal brand, most times a personal brand is, is directly attached to one person, right? So like if that's, it's, if my personal brand is how Nikita shows up in the room, right? However, my business brand is is branding chicks. And although they're, they have some things that cross over, like I've built my business brand to represent me in, in some ways. So I know that I want to have the same kind of personality so that when I show up in the room, that people know that this is how it would be to work with me as well. But sometimes that's not the case. So if you are, um, if you have a, a particular brand for yourself, um, whether it's a spoken one or not, because we all have a brand, regardless of whether we are taking, you know, being strategic about it or not. However, people perceive us is that is our brand. But your personality or your your personal brand might be different than your business brand. So it helps to be able to separate the two. You're gonna establish the same things for both. Or maybe you are running a business where you're kind of in the background and your business is at the forefront. So you don't necessarily have a public facing personal brand. That's fine too. Um, but you just uh, you have to make that decision for yourself of what you want that to look like. But in terms of what the tenets of the personal brand and the business brand are, those are very similar. Um, what's the voice of the brand? Like what's the personality? Those things are kind of linked um, for a personal brand. You may or may not have a specific audience. It depends on how you show up. So like, for instance, like I said, for me, because I have a personal brand as well, like when I do public speaking and things like this, um, or even just just like who I am in my industry outside of my business. Um, I look at those things and think about, you know, how that interacts with my brand. So I want them to be, um, they don't have to be the same, but they have to be somewhat consistent. So if you hear about this person that you know, and this brand that they're building or this business that they're building, it should make sense to you. It shouldn't be like, why in the world is that person doing that? You know what I mean? Um, so I think, you know, just making sure that it has some continuity is what starts to build your image. But it also gives you an opportunity to build that brand recognition, which is what you really want. Because if you want people to recognize who you are, if they think about a category, you're one of the people or one of the businesses that comes up first for them. You have to be consistent over time in order to build that. Alex? How do you look at um, content, like the kind of content that you might create to attract people to your brand? How do you approach that? Um, it's very based on the same foundation, right? So um, when you think about what your brand voice or your brand personality is, that should shine through in the content that you're creating. So for instance, if the um, the baseline of your brand is very educational, like the voice of your brand is educational, but fun, then your content should be as well. You should be able to make sure that you're teaching people something and all of the content that you share and that you make it, you know, lighthearted or, you know, have a good time on camera, right? Um, so that should be an 
extension of the things that you're creating. Because oftentimes when you look at, you know, your brand as a whole, I look at it as an ecosystem, right? So you have this world of your brand and there's all these things that are elements within that brand. You have no idea where people are going to enter your world. So you have to make sure that it feels the same and sounds the same as it does if it's somewhere else. So they might enter your website. They might stumble upon your website in a Google search, or they might find you on social media and that content is the first thing that they see. So it should embody your brand no matter what. Um, but, you know, think about what it is, how you want to show up, what it is that you want to to leave people with. Um, if Let's say if you're not an educational brand and you're more um, a storyteller, like you want to focus on, you know, some of those things, then maybe your content is all about telling stories around your subject matter and not necessarily teaching people something. But you get to decide what that is and then you implement that, you know, in every aspect, including content. Awesome. And then so you said something that was um, key there, too, is depending on like where they come in, whether it be the website or they see you on social, when someone's sitting down and they're looking at, OK, so what steps do they need to take to to really think through that is or, or even tools like is that a mind mapping process? Because what I'm I'm hoping to get to is giving people an idea of really what this creating a brand, a yeah. cohesive brand, what that involves. Yeah. So one of the processes that I take my clients through is I have them fill out a branding questionnaire. Um, and some of those questions are ones that you can answer for yourself, you know, personally. So for instance, um, if you haven't really nailed down who you think your audience or audiences are, then do that exercise, like really identify them. Who are the people that you want to serve? Um, you might be B2C, you might be B2B. If you're serving um, other companies or businesses and not necessarily individuals, then profile that business or that or that company. Like what kind of company do you want to serve? How big are they? What kind of industries are they in? What problems do they have that you think that your service or product can solve, right? So really think about who your audience is. Um, think about what your business goal are because without having a business, without having business goals, then it's hard for you to create a strategy, a brand strategy that's going to help you meet those goals as well. Um, I also asked some fun questions like if your brand were a car, which one would it be? If your brand was an animal, which one would it be? Because sometimes it helps to just kind of take it outside the realm of how you normally see it and look at it as something else, right? So is your, if I say it's your brand an animal, are you thinking, you know, a tiny little kitten? Or are you thinking like a lion that roars a lot, right? They both have their own, you know, benefits, but which one, you know, do you identify with most? So think about those things. Um, also, um, identifying that audience is super important, like I said, because it's going to guide a lot of your decisions, because you're always going to want to be doing things or creating yourself in such a way that you're directly engaging with the people that you want to attract. So, you know, might be lots of wonderful ideas out there about things you can do. And especially if you're a solopreneur like I am, you know, it's easy to kind of get sidetracked by the shiny thing over there. Like, oh, they're doing that. Oh, they're doing that. Right. Um, sometimes that that thing that other people are doing may not be the thing that's going to get you closer to your audience. So being able to have that litmus test to to hold it up against makes a big difference. So really think about your audience, really identify your brand voice. So one way to do that, like I said, is, you know, if and think about this as a growth exercise so you know 
if you are looking to move your business to the next level, then the question in your head is, who do I want to be? How do I want to show up? That may not necessarily be exactly who you are right now. Like really think about who you want to be. So you want to create a brand that you're growing into. You want to create a brand that embodies exactly what you want it to be, not necessarily where you are now, because you may have some things, some of those things now, but you may not have all of them. So you want to make sure that you're building something that you can grow into. So that's the the best advice that I have for you is to really think about who you are in that space and then identify every aspect that you're touching your audience in now, whether that's, you know, the meetings that you have with them or that social media or that's your website. Look at each one of those things individually and ask yourself if you're showing up in the way that you want to based on the brand voice that you would like to embody and the people that you want to attract. Alex? Yeah, the... um how do you deal with a lot of times what happens is you have you have your brand and you you have your website and you have your business cards and everything else and then accounting yeah. sends out like a bill to the client <laughs> that does not look like doesn't come out that way yeah. is is that something you you pay attention to like what the invoices look like or what the quotes look like that you know and and ha- you know is that is that something that you view important I do um I'm also a designer so I might not be the right person to ask but um the in my experience It's obviously a pet peeve of mine <laughs> It's like it's like it should look like we built it. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> well, it goes back to that consistency, right? You know, and in my experience, I find that some of those things that we may not necessarily pay attention to or don't think is really making an impact, it makes an impact with people, but they may not even be able to identify what is and what isn't off. Like either it feels good to them or doesn't feel good to them as the customer, right? But they don't may not necessarily. If you ask them pointedly, like why doesn't that feel good, they wouldn't be able to tell you probably, but they have the experience. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, we talk a lot about how people feel when they look at something. I had a client, very large client that, um, that I built, they said, how are you going to do this project? And I did a wiring diagram Mm -hmm. and, and they hired me because of the wiring diagram (laughs) because, because all the spaces were equal, like, like very, like hundreds of lines and all of them. And it took me an extra couple hours to do that. But those are the kind of things that I was, that, that I'm kind of, you know, that, that all of those things seem to matter. Oh, they do. Uh, the down to the smallest detail. I really, I really feel like it makes a huge difference. Um, I have an example. So, um, I do a lot of public speaking as well, and so that's something that I'm very aware of, especially because you know I build teams for certain projects, but for the most part, I am the face of my brand. So I have to be aware of the fact that whenever I show up in a room or show up to to do something, that I am the embodiment of branding chicks, right? So I have a branding chicks wardrobe that's mostly branding chicks colors, so that when I show up in that room, people may not realize that, but it's like, oh, I saw this person speak and then she gave me a business card. And then I went to her website and all those things feel the same to me. Like they may not necessarily realize why, but they still have the experience of, oh, all that goes together, you know? Um, So sometimes it's it's the small things Um, or even, you know, sometimes that means like, you know, choosing something that will make you stand out, you know, especially, like I said, if you are the embodiment of your brand and you're the the face that people see most often. Um, I have a good friend who's also a branding person um, and her last name is Gray. So she's usually wearing gray when she shows up to things. Um, and she has this like really awesome fedora that has become her signature. So when she shows up in a room, you know, people notice that hat, you know, they may not realize that she's wearing gray, but they notice that hat every time. You know, 
And you said that, I like how you said that, because we've had conversations, because a lot of the people in office hours, whether they are working in the corporate environment or they are on Teams, they're mm -hmm. the, the live stream techs, they're the AV, and even just having a uniform is what you spoke to, like mm -hmm. that being a part of the overall brand experience right. for people. What are some of the mistakes that you mm -hmm. find people make yeah. um, and how can they avoid them? Oh, that's a great question. Um, one of the mistakes I would say is not taking the time to nail down some of those like specific foundational things that we just talked about. Like, and the reason why that becomes a problem is because now you're um, you're kind of going with what feels good in the moment and that may not actually help you build your brand. So like often you may be, let's say that you've decided to market yourself in one way or you've decided to go after a certain set of clients, you know, on the sales side of things, but then, you know, you're kind of all over the place. So then you end up with clients that are all over the place. They're all very different and not in the best ways, right? Then you end up with clients that are not necessarily your people, that are not necessarily the people that you want to be serving most or that value your your service the most right um that's a that's always a bad thing like nobody wants to feel like they're not working for people who value what they do right so that's one of them um the other one i would say is comparing yourself to other people um there's always something we can learn from others but i think that if you are looking at what they do and making that be like a litmus test of where you should be, I think that sometimes that goes wrong. Like so many, think of the brands that stand out the most to us or the ones that we're most attracted to. Often they're different than, than the other um, brands that are in that category. They stand out somehow. They've made themselves different, you know? Um, so really think about that. And, you know, as a small business, if you're in a small business, you know, situation, sometimes it's hard not to do that because you're like, man, I really wish I was where they were. So maybe I should do what they're doing um, instead of doing what it is that you know that you should be doing for yourself. Um, and it doesn't mean that you can't grow to their level, but you grow to their level by establishing your own brand and not comparing yours to someone else. So I would say, you know, keep that in mind as well. Um, and then the last thing is, you know, just be consistent. You know, I think if you're a creative person like me, then it's easy to get kind of bored and be like, I don't want to do it like that anymore. And it doesn't mean that your brand can't evolve. Like it's a, a living, breathing thing. And it should be like, you should be checking in with it and being like, okay, are we still on track? Does this still resonate with me? Does this still resonate with our clients? Like you want to ask those questions, but you don't want to be like, you know, I want to, I want to change my, my logo and my colors. I want to change my website completely. I want to change everything. Like if you're doing that constant changing of things, then you're never going to build any, you know, brand recognition for yourself, which is what you want. So try to fight the urge to, to change everything all the time. And if you do decide to change something, make sure that it's based in strategy. Like, is does this does this do what I need it to do? Does it still do what I need it to do? And ask yourself those hard questions before you make a move to change something. Go ahead, Bill. I think you just actually answered the question I was going to pose. It had to do with <laughs> rebranding, finding out that even though you initially thought that this was the path you wanted to take, what if you suddenly discover that either you're less interested than you were originally in your path, or maybe you found out that the market doesn't agree with you as to the path that would lead you to the right kind of success? Uh, how, do you, how do you decide to rebrand and what's the process you feel like? 
Yeah. Um, like I said, you know, make sure that you're you're basing that in strategy. One way to do that is, you know, kind of always check in with your clients. And it doesn't mean that you have to like, you know, send them a survey. Sometimes that's one way to do it. You can send them a survey. Um, I like to do a softer check-in for myself. So if I if someone comes to me and they have um, sent me a, an email through my website and they're interested in working with me, you know, in that first conversation, I want to know how they found me. I want to know what, you know, what attracted them to me over the other people that they looked at, because I want that initial reaction before they've even worked with me. I want to know what drew them in in the first place, right? Um, and usually people are really happy to share that. I also do another soft check-in at the end of a project. You know, I just wanted to, you know, kind of touch bases. You know, what was your favorite part about this process? You know, or what was something that you feel like you wish, you know, had worked a little bit better? Or I asked them for a testimonial. Those things kind of keep you um, on track in terms of what's happening in real time and not just what you think is happening in your head. Um, and so that helps a lot. Uh, but when I, a client comes to me and they are at that crossroads and either... And most times people are at a crossroads for rebranding, either when they are looking at um, growth, like this is a growth moment for us. We are at a crossroads. We definitely want to move into this space or if something big changes about that brand. Um, so like, let's say if, um, for instance, Apple, right? Um, Apple's Apple computers until they brought in the iPod. Once they decided they were stepping into music technology, then they were like, well, we can't be Apple computers anymore you know, and they dropped the computers and it was just Apple. Um, so there's th those moments too, where like if your product or your service is changing, um, then that may be a need for a rebrand. Growth is another reason to rebrand. Or sometimes it's just um, a, a re- um, a remix. <laughs> like it's time to kind of grow up a little bit or, you know, we've had this brand for a long time and it needs to, it needs a refresh. It needs something a little bit, a little bit more contemporary. It may not mean that anything drastic is changing, but we just want to keep up with the times. Um, you know, on the flip side of Apple is uh, BlackBerry, right? Um, they thought that when people started using PDAs, that that was going to be the end all be all. And they, people kept saying, you know, you're now competing with the iPhone, they're like, no, that's a personal, you know, um, a smartphone. This is a business smartphone. And they didn't necessarily look ahead to see that they were going to be one in the same very soon. So they kind of got left behind because they, they thought that they would always hold the business smartphone space and didn't realize that eventually people would want to be able to do all of those things in one device, right? So really think about the... Um, the the climate that you're in in terms of like what your category is and those kind of things. So it does take a little bit of looking forward, but um, I, I would say if you're considering a rebrand, like figure out which one of those categories you might fit into. And then um, when I'm working with clients that are interested in a rebrand, I also do a little bit of an audit, which you can do, you know, yourself, you know, on a lower level, which is just exactly what I said before. Look at every aspect of your brand and figure out what's working about it, what What's not working about it? What's working about your website? What's not working about a web your website? What's working about your process in terms of how you work with clients? What's not working there? What's working about your collateral, your invoices, your um, all of your your um, your decks, your your sales, any of that kind of stuff? So look at every single aspect of it, and you know, kind of do an audit for yourself. Like, what's working about this, and what's not working about this? 
All right, Bill, it looks like we've got these questions piling up and to our producers, go ahead and add any additional questions that you have for Nikita as we discuss brand development for your business. Let's go, Bill. Absolutely. The first one comes from Mike Edwards out of Brooklyn, New York. Morning, Nikita. What best practices would you recommend to effectively blend digital branding with tangible and or local branding? Um, I would say just make sure it's consistent. So um, when you talk about digital branding versus local branding, I would assume that means like, you know, if you have an office space or if you're doing advertising or any of those kind of things, um, ideally you want it to look the same in terms of it should have the same feeling, the same vibe. Um, you should use the same color palettes. You should have one lo- one version or two versions of your logo that you're using on everything. You want to make sure that all those things feel the same. Um, if you get stuck and you don't know exactly what that means, look at some of the biggest brands that you interact with on a day-to-day basis. Um, McDonald's is now at a place where you don't need make the sign to say McDonald's anymore. It's just the golden arches. But those golden arches are going to be on everything and it's going to show up the same way everywhere because then it's easy to identify, right? So they don't change their colors that much. They don't do any of that stuff. Um, so really look at you know the Um, how it plays out in a digital form and how it plays out in a personal form. So let's say, for instance, um, when I said brand voice and trying to figure out what that means, like if you want something that is educational, then like if educational is, is part of your brand voice, then like I said before, your content should teach people something, but also for your other aspects, like in a physical space, if you have decided to do posters for your brand, then maybe in your brand, in that in that poster, the thing that draws people in is like a did you know fact or something that is going to give them some information as well as market you, you know? So you want to make sure that whatever that overarching idea is, that it kind of filters throughout. Nice. Next question. Next one comes to us from Tony Mobley in Noonan, Georgia. Your digital presence looks very good. Please share your camera, audio, and light setup. Oh, wonderful. Um, So I have a Yeti microphone here. Um, I am on a Logitech, I think it's the C920 um, as an external camera. And I have a ring light here. I don't know the brand, but it's one of the big ones. Um, I think that's it. Yeah, (laughs) we we geek out. We geek out around the technology <laughs> here, as you can see. So when our guests come in and they look great, then the, those questions roll in. Thank you, Tony. Next question. Eduardo Augustine down in Panama says, how do you handle building a brand if you don't yet have clients? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, you should build a brand before you have clients. Um, so you're in the right place. Um, the reason why you want to build a brand before you have clients is because, again, this is a growth um, exercise. It's an opportunity for you to declare who you are as a business and who you want to serve as a business. I find that sometimes, and I, we've all been caught there, I definitely was early on in my career, where I ended up kind of building myself around the people who came to me. Um, like these people want to work with me. So this is my audience. And that's not necessarily always the best way to go, especially if you're looking to work with specific groups of people, you have to set yourself up so that you are 
um, attracting those people that you really want to work with. And once I started doing that, then I realized that I didn't have as many uh, situations where I'm like, you know, I don't really want to work on this project or I don't know if they really value my service because I was attracting attracting exactly the people that I wanted to work with. So, you know, setting up that brand gives you an opportunity to kind of put that stake in the sand. And then the people that come to you will be people that are attracted to that and not just because you're there. Next question. Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana. Up next, how does one keep the owner from being the brand in a small business or should they even try to avoid this? Ooh, that's a great question. Um, I went through this myself, um, especially as a solopreneur. It is hard to um, to be the face of the brand, but it's also like, you know, I don't want to seem like I'm the only one. Should I make it seem like we're bigger? Um, and I went through that. Um, so I would say we on everything, even though it was just me. And then I eventually kind of got to a place where I was like, you know, it's fine. Like, I don't, I'm fine with building teams when I need to build teams and I feel like I can do the projects that I really want to do and still be, you know, and still be me and only me. Um, So I think that's a personal decision. Um, If you want to separate the two, then I think that the best way to do that is to um, make it clear that you are the, you know, that this is the founder of the brand, but, you know, maybe you don't have as much like FaceTime, like you kind of put the business out front more often than you put yourself out front. Um, So that's one way to do it. Another way to do it is um, even if you're in a situation where um, you don't necessarily, like you're doing most of the work, like if you have creative partners or people that you are in partnership with, that you collaborate with on a regular basis, feature those people as well. So then they see that it's a much more collaborative approach to what you're doing and it's not just you. Um, So there's ways to kind of separate it or not separate it. But I do think you have to make that decision for yourself because it will dictate, you know, how you approach it. So make that as a personal decision of which one you'd like to show up as. And I don't think there's a downside to either one, to be honest. It's just a matter of how you want to, how you want to operate. Go ahead, Bill. Nikita, I just wondered as a follow-up to that, what do you do if the owner wants to be the brand, but they have um, personality issues or something else where their ego may not be the best thing for the brand? How do you talk them down, so to speak? Oh, I've been there before with a client. Um, (laughs) I think the best thing to do is to focus on the strategy and the goals, right? Um, So often when people are in that space and and their ego is kind of taking over, I find that that's that's what happens when ego takes over. So to kind of get people out of that space, focus on the business itself. Like what are our, what are our business goals? What is our business strategy? How do we want that to be? And then, you know, go through the process of really matching those things up together. Like be like, okay, these are the people that we really want to serve. If we put you out front, are those are those people going to be attracted to you? Right. Um, Or the way that you operate when you do things. Um, Is there um, some way for us to do some testing? You know, if you have to get some clients, um, you know, shoot some videos or some social short social media stuff featuring that person and just do a blind test and ask if they, you know, do you respond to this? What do you think about this? Sometimes you have to take it out of a person to person conversation and give them data to be able to have them understand that this just isn't working 
working for our goals. It's not that you're you're bad or wrong. It's just that this isn't working based on what we are trying to do. You know what I mean? Um, and sometimes that helps to kind of put the put the ego aside a little. Um, the other thing that I find that happens often, even in building a brand, is if the you know sometimes the founder is so tied up in the brand that they are they think that the brand should be what they like. Um, and of course they should be proud of the brand, but the brand is built to attract the audience. It's not built to represent the owner necessarily. Right. So sometimes making that distinction between people, like, you know, for instance, I've had a client come to me and be like, well, I love these color palettes you put together, but like, I really hate yellow. So I don't want it to be yellow. And it's like, well, I get that. But also from a color psychology standpoint, you said you wanted something to be bright and lively. So yellow is a great way to do that. And that's something that people are going to respond to in terms of, you know, they want to they want to engage with a brand that is bright and lively. So your personal preference doesn't actually fit here, you know, based on who it is that you want to serve and what your what story you're trying to tell. So sometimes you just have to bring the information in that's separate from that personal feeling. Um, so it's not, I feel this way and you feel that way. This works, this doesn't work. I like how too, and that you just shared there is so that it they don't necessarily take offense, but like yeah. I can show you better than I can tell you, like putting exactly. that together and so that they can see how it performs really. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Next question. Comes to us from Eduardo Augustine back in Panama. Uh, is it wise to address business branding at the beginning? The current audience he has is not a paying client. What mm -hmm. do you advise? Um, I do think it's important to address it at the beginning. Um, but in terms of when you say that the client isn't a paying client, you mean that that's you're looking at them as an audience or are you trying to do branding for them? Oh, so that's a that's a question from one of our producers. So okay. they can, Eduardo, if you want to uh, add that to the chat, so that we can that we can see that response. But you can just add either either use case. Okay, um, so um, it's important to do it at the beginning because it sets a good foundation contextually for what's going to happen next, right? So if you already have established some of those things, then it makes it really easy to know what you're creating to match up against um, and what works based on whether it's aligned with that strategy or not aligned with that strategy. So if you try to establish it as you go along, then sometimes it's easy to kind of waver and you end up with something that actually doesn't fit what you wanted it to fit. So, you know, establishing it ahead of time, it makes a big difference, especially when you're working with a client. So if you're working with a client and, you know, having that conversation up front means that that, is, that now becomes the context for everything that you create with them after that. Um, so even if you are, um, let's say you're, you know, producing you know, content for someone or you're, you know, actually, you know, creating um uh, some sort of media for them. If you know what their brand is up front, then it makes it so much easier to have that conversation with them about what works and what doesn't based on the brand that they've already established. So now you're not trying to sell them anything. It really is like you, we talked about your brand. We talked about the brand voice. I've looked at all the other stuff that you've created. Um, I did this 
to be in alignment with what you are already doing. And so then that way, it's not like, I just love this and I think it's amazing. It's like, no, this is in alignment with what you've already created. And it makes it so much easier to have that conversation with the client versus like trying to sell them on anything, right? You're just kind of giving them their their brand back to them, (laughs) if that makes sense. And Eduardo did add, he said they are the audience and mm-hmm. want want to transfer to clients, but they would not want to pay for the services. Ah, so um, that's a value issue, right? So I think sometimes the when people don't value, you know, the the brand and the strategy, it's because they don't understand it more than anything else. Um, they don't understand what brand actually means, which is part of the reason why, you know, I love that Liberty asked me that in the beginning, like, how do you define brand? Because it really is every single touch point that you have with your, with your customer. So one of the ways that I um, usually explain this to clients sometimes is I have them think about what brands they are attracted to. Like, what's your favorite brand? Like out of the things you use on a day-to-day basis, what are the things that you're, you know, you're going to go back to them every time? Um, I don't care whether it's a restaurant or you like Target versus Walmart, or you have a specific, you know, brand of materials that you use for your work, like whatever those things are, like what makes that brand the one that you, you know, are always attracted to. And usually just in the process of them talking about it and talking through it, they kind of start to understand what brand really means because they usually don't say one thing. It's not like, you know, I really like the package and then they stop there, right? It's usually like, well, they're my favorite because it works really well. It's, you know, the the price of it is is priced fairly. Um, I've called them before when I had an issue with this thing and the customer service was really amazing and this and that and the other thing. So even just with them speaking their own experience, they kind of start to understand what happens in a brand, a brand that's well-built and how it performs because now they're an audience of that brand. So sometimes just being able to give them a perspective that they already have, but they have not attached it to brand um, makes a big difference. Next question. Next comes from one Alex Lindsay in Nevada, California. How important do you think your Zoom presence is for your brand? I think it's important, um, especially these days when it's so much of how you show up, you know, so I I always say that, like, if you're going to if you're a person that goes to networking events or like if you've done speaking or any of those kind of things, if you would take really specific care of how you show up in that room, what clothes you have on, what colors you're wearing, how you speak to people, whether you mingle or not, like it's the same thing. It's exactly the same thing. It's just in a digital space. So, you know, we might be focused on other things in terms of like what makes you show up well in Zoom. But I do think it's important because sometimes, again, it's the only touch point that people might have with you. They may not have gone to any other aspect of your ecosystem yet. So, you know, for some of the audience today, this might be the first time you've ever seen me. So if you go to my website after this or anything like that, then that's a secondary thing. But this is the first impression. So you want to make sure that that's as strong as the other impressions that you might make. And that's interesting that you say that too, because I was thinking about because our community does a lot of digital productions and events, mm-hmm. how someone like an organization, if they're getting ready to put on, they feel the need to maybe do a workshop or a conference, what elements should they be thinking about from that digital perspective of like hosting question. the event? Yeah, absolutely. As it so, relates to their brand. <laughs> 
Yeah, absolutely. So when you're thinking about doing a, a digital event, you know, you want to make sure that you have a brand for that event, you know, ideally, even if it's just like a specific name just for that event. Um, make sure that you have a specific name for it. There might be a specific look or a specific, you know, logo that goes along with it, depending on how um, it fits into your like brand ecosystem. Like, let's say if Branding Chicks was hosting something, I might have a, an event and I've done this before. I might have events, but they they look like they're cousins to Branding Chicks. Like if I put them side by side, you can tell that they're from the same family, but they may not look exactly the same. Right. But it still fits like they see it and they're like, oh, Branding Chicks is doing that. That makes sense to me. So you want to have a specific look. Um, you want to be very clear about what the objective of that event is um, and be able to articulate it well and write about it in a way that um, that really draws in the people that you want to attend. So even in the description, like so let's say you're doing it on Eventbrite or you register for it on your website, how you talk about what this event is should be written in the language that is going to attract the people that you want to come to this thing. Um, so and how you do it on social media, how you market it on social media is going to be important. Um, giving yourself enough time to be able to tell the story of what this event is as you market it. Um, I always recommend, you know, two to four weeks um, to give yourself time to like really unfold and like build some momentum and give people a chance to get excited about what it is you're doing. And then once you're on screen, then, you know, um, being some people do virtual backgrounds. I've seen that where they have like branded ba virtual backgrounds. Um, sometimes that works just to kind of unify what it looks like on screen, being able to have like those um, uh, title cards before everybody hops in the room. You know, they have something to look at that that's branded, that has information on it um, before, you know, you start to see all the faces and everything like that. But just think about every single experience that your, your audience is going to have, like walk yourself through it. Okay. I saw this thing on social media. What does it look like? I keep seeing it on social media. What does that look like? I decide, okay, I really want to look into this further. I go to the website that they told me to go to. What does that look like? When I go to the website and I decide I'm going to register, what does the registration process look like? Once I register, what happens? Do I get an email confirmation? What does that look and sound like? Then when I log in for the actual event, what do I see first? What happens throughout? What happens afterwards? Like, pretend that you are the audience and walk yourself through every aspect of that process. And that will give you the experience that you want them to have, because then you will have considered every one of those aspects and not just one or two of them, because you put yourself in their shoes. The customer journey. Thank yeah, you. That was absolutely. great. Next question. Roscoe Jones is back from Madison, Indiana. Since you have been teaching, what qualities have made for successful students in branding? Ooh, um, I would say the people that I think are best at branding are people that are problem solvers. Um, they are looking to... Um, to figure something out. Um, so I think problem solvers are good. Um, also just a genuine curiosity. I think that's one of the things that serves me really well with, you know, with the work that I do is that I ask a lot of questions. I ask a lot of questions in my regular life, but I ask a lot of questions of my clients. I'm always like, oh, what about this? And have you thought about this? And also what about this thing? So I want to know everything. Like I want to go deep into, you know, into their, their brand and their business. Like I want to know as much as I possibly can, because that gives me such a well-rounded view so that when I work with them on strategy or executing that strategy in some way, that it's not only thoughtful, but it comes from a 
360 view. Like I didn't just consider one aspect and kind of built something based on that. I wanted to really work for them. Um, and I have the benefit of being on the outside looking in, whereas if you're building it yourself, then sometimes you're a little too close to it. Um, but so I want to have as much information as you have, but without the emotional attachment, if that makes sense. Um, so I think, you know, that that helps a lot too. Um, and then the other thing is just being willing to um, to collaborate and to always ask the questions that may mean that you go in a different direction. Like, I I, I feel like you can't be um, emotionally tied to it, like I said, because then you just get stuck. Like, no, it has to be this way instead of being in a um, explorated, uh, exploration kind of place where it's like, well, I wonder if this would work. Let's see, you know, let's, let's try this and see what happens. Um, I think that those are the people that are the best at branding. Some people come from a business background. Some come from a, um, a marketing background some come from a data background. So it really is a good mix of, of people that do this work. Um, and for me, it's very much like um, head and heart, like I said, is, is sort of my philosophy. So I want that. I want brands that feel good, that feel the way that people want them to feel. But I'm also looking at the data and the business strategy and all those things so that it's all cohesive. And just to add on to that, who does need to be in the room when you are looking at that brand for for people who are watching in an organization perspective because you just touched on some areas mm -hmm. yeah um definitely want the decision maker in the room because you know when you're attaching when you're talking about a brand like it is it touches everything it impacts everything so if you don't have the biggest decision maker on board with this it's going to be a hard a hard road uphill. Um, so if that's the CEO or if that's the founder of that organization, they need to be involved in some way. Um, if there is a board involved, if you're a nonprofit or something like that, or you have a business board, some of those people need to be involved. I'm not saying that everyone needs to be involved, but it needs to be some representation of the board there as well. Um, if you already have a marketing team or people that are doing marketing or social media or any of that for you, then you want to have those people in the room as well. Well, um, not only because you want to hear what their experiences have been and what thought process they are already approaching the brand with, but also even if you're, let's say if I'm rebranding that organization, when it comes time to like, okay, you have your brand is built, we figured all these things out for you, you now have the structure of how all of this is going to look, and that team is the one that's tasked with executing it on a day-to-day -day basis, they have to be in alignment, they have to be on board with it and feel like this is something that they can embody or the whole thing falls flat because it's, it's not something you create one time you create the foundation for it one time and then every day you're embodying that brand in different ways so whoever's doing that work needs to be part of the conversation awesome next question next one comes to us from alex Lindsay again in nevada california have you ever worked with car wraps Car reps. I don't think I, I have. I know it sounds crazy. I it's something <laughs> I've become a little obsessed with when it comes to branding. Um, <laughs> is that is that people will wrap their car. You can pay, oh, gotcha. you know, a couple, couple thousand mm -hmm. dollars, and they'll put a wrap on your car. Yeah. And at first, you think it's uh, what I found is that how often I take pictures of it. Like, oh, that's something. That's a service that I want. And I just take a picture of it on the car. Yeah. yeah. And and I talked to a friend who has a car wrap, and they said it's like. 80% of their work comes from, now this is someone who provides services in LA, yeah, um, film services. And mm -hmm. so they just said it's like 80% of the work that comes in is from the stuff on their car. Yeah, um, I've, I've designed a couple of those for clients and they can be really effective. I think, you know, 
it also depends on how you approach it. So some people, like if you're an independent, some people will wrap their own car, right? Like this is the car I go out and do the work in. So this is the car I'm going to wrap. But there's also possibilities for like, I don't know if you've ever seen cars that have like maybe a light box on top of their car that advertises something like that same service sometimes is a car wrap. So there you can pay people to wrap their their individual vehicles with your wrap for a specific period of time, just like you would pay for a billboard. Um, so there's different ways to do it. Um, but it definitely makes a difference. Cause like you said, you know, people see it and they're like, man, I've, I've been thinking about, you know, needing that service. It's quick. I can take a picture right then, or I can, you know, write down the phone number really quickly or whatever that looks like. I, I have someone coming to work on my, on my house is because they had a QR code on the back of their truck. Mm-hmm, like it was mm-hmm. literally just a QR code. I pointed my phone to take a picture of it and, and, and it was, it just popped up a website and I was like, oh, yep. there you go. <laughs> so make, anyway. make it easy for people to work with you. You know, that's just one of those ways that you make it easy for people to work with you. Easy to find you, easy to work with you, and definitely make it easy to pay you. <laughs> yeah. <The> last part. <laughs> Next question. That last bit all made us all smile. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Next question comes from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas again. The New York Times, BuzzFeed, and Slate branded me as the original king of Twitter. Should I use this for my branding or is this too pretentious? And he's got (laughs) a link to the note there. (laughs) Um, I would use it. I think, you know, um, for what... I would use it, but maybe don't take it so seriously. Like if you can, um, and it helps to be able to say that you are serving a particular... Um, that you have a particular title that was given to you by someone else, always talk about who gave you the title, right? Like I'm not the self-proclaimed king of Twitter, right? These people call me the king of Twitter, right? Um, so I would always just make sure that that is a, a that's always attached to it because um, that allows you to not feel like you're, you know, you're being um, something that you don't want to show up as, but also acknowledge that because it happened and you should definitely tell people about it. Next question. Douglas Carmichael is up next. He says, for a creative and technical professional on the autism spectrum, can that be used positively in one's branding? I think so. Um, Part of being on the spectrum or being neurodivergent in any way, um, I think that more and more as people learn about these things, they're starting to understand that there are superpowers that sort of come along with that sometimes too. Um, But also just from an accessibility standpoint and from a diversity standpoint, if you have personal experience with some of these things, then you can tell your clients like, look, I want to make sure that this is as inclusive as possible. And because of my own experience, I know what might work and what might not work for someone who's neurodivergent. So, you know, you can give them, it's almost like you get a DEI consultant um, wrapped up in whatever it is that you already do, because sometimes that's really an issue. Like, you know, one of the things that, you know, I consider with my my decks and stuff when I go to speak, and I'm not sure who's going to be in the audience, I don't use certain colors in my decks because people who are colorblind are not going to be able to see those things, right? So, like, Having thought about that means that I know that I'm my talk is going to be more inclusive. And I've had people, co- I didn't, you know, for me, I'm thinking about it, but I didn't tell anybody else that I did in those situations. But I've had people come up to me and be like, I'm so glad that you, you know, your presentation, I could see everything. It was great. Even from far away, I could see everything. So that may be a way to sort of position yourself as, you know, a way to make things inclusive, especially if you are um, doing media or if you are um 
touching events and things like that, you know, how do you make sure that people who might be on the spectrum are not overstimulated in that event? Do you have anything in place to make sure that that doesn't happen or that you even considered it in the planning? You know, that's that's a, a benefit that you have that not everybody else is necessarily thinking of. So I would definitely tell people about it. Thank you so much, Nikita. And before we wrap today's show, I want to give you the last word. Like you've taken us all the way from like, what is branding to all the different touch points that one needs to consider for your business, the people who need to be involved. What else would you want to add or leave us with any additional gems from you? Um, Have fun. You know, I think sometimes when you think about um, I would assume that a lot of you guys like me love what you do, right? So when you love what you do and you start, you know, attaching like the strategy to it and like the marketing to it and the sales to it, it can be a little bit overwhelming or it can feel a little bit overwhelming in the beginning. But the truth is, is that, you know, branding yourself is really just giving you an opportunity to do more of what you love. So have fun with it. Like, you know, don't don't have the, what is it? The perfectionist pr- paralysis. Um, I, I'm that person. Sometimes I get stuck there too. So, you know, I just want you to have fun with it and, you know, think about how you can make what it is you do more palatable to the people that you really want to work with. That's the only real goal. So have some fun with it. And what's next for you? What's next for me? Um, Branding Chicks is still going strong. So that's been a lot of fun. Um, I'm doing some more teaching and probably going to be um, developing some workshops here soon um, so that people can learn from me on an individual basis. So I'm working on that. Uh, for people who are interested in moving into brand strategy um, or adding it to the services that they provide for their clients um, or people who are just interested in knowing more so that they can build their own brands a little bit better. Awesome. Thank you so much, Nikita, for joining us today. I know that this will be on replay for many people <laughs> who are who are watching. And for our producers, thank you so much for your questions. As always, our panel, thank you for the answers and responding and sharing your insights. And of course, our back end team for without which this would not be possible. Tomorrow, we are talking all things AI and mid journey. So we'll look at at how you can use it in your workflow for presentations. And I cannot, and then also today at 2 p.m., the NAB in planning for after hours in breakout in the breakout room at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard. Yeah, Eastern Standard Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. And the Tullock Traversal has gone 36,623 miles, and that is 58,938 kilometers, and that is 331 million bananas around the earth. So (laughs) to learn more about the schedule for the rest of the week, head over to officehours.global and we're going to head into after hours. We'll see you soon. Bye. And Nikita, this is where we whisper as the credits roll. Yeah, that was great. On the show. I don't want to be like, well, we're doing the best we can. (laughs) I feel like I have to have a very shiny car to put it in.
just waiting for them to say.